Hey, welcome back. In this session, we're going to talk about the very first thing you need to do after you have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior, and that is to be baptized in water. So where should we start this conversation about water baptism? Well, I think a good place to start is maybe to define the word baptism. What is baptism? As you may or may not know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And the word used in the original Greek New Testament that our Bibles translate as baptism is the word baptizo. Now, when the New Testament was written, that word baptizo was not a religious word as the word baptism has become in our own day. Baptizo was an everyday Greek word describing the full immersion of a solid in a liquid. So the word baptizo was used to describe things like the sinking of a ship or the dipping of a cup in a bowl of wine or the soaking of a cloth in a vat of dye. So where the people of the New Testament times would have used baptizo to describe something, to describe the same thing in English, we would use words like sink or dip or saturate. That's the sense of the word. So if that's what the word means, then what was baptism in the times of the early church? Well, very simply, it was the complete submersion of a person in water symbolizing something that was happening to that person. So, for example, John the Baptist came on the scene in Israel and he, his job was to prepare the way for Jesus. And his main activity was, according to Mark chapter 1 verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So in John's baptism, water was a symbol of the washing away of sins. Now, that's also true of Christian baptism, but Christian baptism contains far more than that, as we will see today. Now, John's baptism of repentance was not sufficient in itself to bring people into the kingdom of God fully. But it was a powerful way to get the people in Israel to turn back to God in humility in order to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus, which was shortly going to begin. And even John himself said that Jesus would come after him with a better baptism, a baptism in the Holy Spirit, which would complete what he was beginning. And that's why when Jesus came to be baptized by John at the Jordan River, John protested. You know, he knew that Jesus was sinless and he said to Jesus, I should not baptize you. You don't need it because you have no sin to wash away. I need to be baptized by you, probably because he knew that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. That better baptism. But Jesus responded, permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So even for Jesus, it was right and fitting to be baptized. And perhaps one reason for that was that in the Old Testament, the priests were set apart into the ministry in a, in a ceremony, a ritual in which they were washed in water and then anointed with oil, which symbolized the Holy Spirit. 
And so here Jesus enters the ministry as the high priest of God's people through baptism in water. And immediately, if you know the story, coming up out of the water, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit who came down upon him in the form of a dove and remained on him from that time forwards. So John baptized people in water. Then Jesus also used baptism as a way for people to become his disciples. We read that in John chapter 3 verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. And a few verses later, at the beginning of John chapter 4, John says that Jesus actually baptized more disciples than John the Baptist did. Uh, though it was not Jesus himself who was baptizing, but it was his disciples who were doing the baptizing. So we see that baptism played a major role in the ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus. And then the same thing is also true of the ministry of the apostles after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. You know, the gospel was now being preached to all nations. Jesus had given very strict instructions to his disciples just before he ascended, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, said Jesus, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And this is why baptism is sometimes called an ordinance of the church, an ordinance, because it was ordained by Jesus. It was commanded by him. And that's why when the apostles began their ministry, water baptism played a major role, not just in their practice, but also in their preaching. They told people that God demanded of them to be baptized and that baptism itself was somehow in a very real way connected to the washing away of their sins. Listen to the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost. So this is really the first sermon that was ever preached in the Christian church. He told the crowd, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, 3,000 people believed in Jesus that day, and the Bible says that those who gladly received Peter's words were baptized. And what an amazing scene that would have been, 3,000 people being baptized that day. And we see the same emphasis on water baptism throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which is the record that we have of the um, early evangelistic ministry of the apostles. Uh, for example, when Philip went down to Samaria and he preached Christ to them, when he spoke to them of things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, many believed and both men and women were baptized. So water baptism was central to the practice of Philip the evangelist. But not just his practice, it was central to his preaching. So uh, prominent, in fact, was water baptism to the message of Philip the evangelist, that after hearing Philip preach the gospel, the very first thing the Ethiopian eunuch cried out for was to be baptized in water. Now, how did he know that he was meant to be baptized? Well, clearly Philip had told him. 
uh, we read of that account in Acts chapter 8. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture where the Ethiopian eunuch was busy reading his Bible, Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. And as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And incidentally, that answers the question, when must you be baptized? Well, as soon as you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you must be baptized. Now, it may take a little while for the church baptizing you to be sure that you have believed, which is one of the reasons this course is sometimes used as a preparation for baptism type course. So that by the end of the, these five sessions, the people responsible for your baptism can be sure that you understand what is happening and that you still, at the end of this course, want to be baptized. But as soon as everyone is happy that you do believe in the Lord Jesus, there must be no further delay. You must be baptized. So... We're busy looking at how baptism played a major role in the ministries of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the Apostles. And as we continue through the book of Acts, we see more of this. Uh, when Paul the Apostle, who was formerly named Saul, when he encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was led by the hand into the city. He'd been blinded by the light that he'd seen. And there, three days later, he was baptized as a believer by a man named Ananias, who said this to him. And now, Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Shortly after that event... Uh, the story in Acts then jumps to the account of Peter being sent to the house of a Gentile Roman centurion named Cornelius. And to Peter's astonishment, the Holy Spirit fell upon these Gentiles as he preached the gospel to them. And they all spoke with tongues and, and were prophesying. And Peter was astonished because he thought that salvation was only for the Jews. And when Peter realized that God had saved these Gentiles by faith, his very first words were this. Can anyone forbid water that these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then a little later, we see how when Paul preached in Philippi, a woman named Lydia believed. And again, baptism was central to Paul the Apostle's work of evangelism. And I want to read you Luke's account of the first thing that Paul did. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. Shortly after that, Paul and Silas were then thrown in prison and they were asked by that Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And again, as we read on, we see this. So 
They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And the jailer took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his whole family were baptized. Baptism was central to the message and practice of the early church. In fact, Luke summarized the whole result of Paul's ministry in Corinth with these words. He said, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now, the reason I've read all of those accounts to you is to show you that baptizing people in water when they have repented and believed in Jesus is an integral part of salvation from sin and our entry into the Christian life. It's not an afterthought and it's not a bare, somewhat unnecessary memorial to your salvation. On the contrary, I hope to show you that it is in fact an integral part of your salvation if we define the word salvation, as the Bible does, broader than just who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. Salvation means more than that. You know, the, the Bible speaks about a total deliverance from the power of sin, not just the guilt of it, but the power of it and the influence of it. And water baptism, as we shall see, plays a very real and powerful role in that liberation. So we return to the question, what is baptism? And let me now give you a simple definition, and then I will expand on that a little bit. Baptism is the full immersion of a repentant believer in water as part of their initial entrance into the Christian life. Now, that means that in my view, the christening of a baby is not a Christian baptism because babies cannot repent and believe. And if you were christened as a baby and you're wondering whether or not you should be baptized now that you have become a believer, well, I hope that what you learn today will convince you that you should be baptized now. And in fact, I trust that you will be excited at the thought of it. However, having said that, to be fair to a large section of the church, who do believe in pedo-baptism. Pedo-baptism is the baptism of babies. They will tell you that the practice is based on an understanding of baptism as the covenant sign put upon the children of believers as circumcision was in the Old Testament. Now, I don't believe that that view is biblical, but it is an honest disagreement within the church and many good men do believe and teach that. So if you were christened as a child, and now you have genuinely been converted and you're struggling with whether or not you should be baptized. Again, just work this out together with your pastor or your minister. Have a conversation with them about it and then you've got to go with your conscience. Okay, so let's now ask another helpful question. In baptism, who is doing what? What is happening there in the water? And the answer that I would like to give you to that question is that in baptism, God is doing something, the church is doing something, and you, the baptized believer, you are doing something. All three are active in baptism. 
So let's begin with you, the person being baptized. What do you do in baptism? Baptism is the way a new believer publicly commits him or herself to Christ and to Christ's people. Bobby Jameson puts it this way in his book, Understanding Baptism. Baptism is how you go on record as a Christian. It's how you publicly profess your faith in and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So saying the sinner's prayer, if you've heard of that, at the front of a church is not the way the Bible tells us to publicly accept Jesus. The way the Bible tells us to publicly accept Jesus is by being baptized. And there, in the waters, as we call on the name of the Lord, as Ananias said to Paul, there our sins are, in some sense, washed away in the very act of baptism. Okay, so that's what you do in baptism. You are, by being baptized, confessing your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And baptism is the very first way for you to do that. Okay, so that's your part. Now, what about the church? What is the church doing in the act of baptizing you? Well, baptism by its very nature is at the very least a two-man job, you know? <laughs> you, you get baptized by someone else. And that someone has to be a Christian. And normally that happens within the life of a local church. And I am assuming that if you are doing this course in preparation for your upcoming baptism, that it's being done in some way by, or at least recognized by, a local church. So, what does the church then do in baptism? Well, when the church baptizes a new believer, we are affirming that, that we accept this person as one of our own. We're publicly declaring to everyone who's watching that this person whom we are now baptizing is being united with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. And in so doing, he is being or she is being united with us. So just like Philip told that Ethiopian eunuch that he would baptize him if he believed with all his heart. In the same way, when we baptize someone, the church we as the church are saying, we accept that this person is a genuine believer together with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, it may take a little bit of time for the church to accept that about you, which is why there may be a little bit of delay before you are then baptized. And again, that's what this course is designed to help churches do, to make sure you understand the foundational doctrines of the gospel so that when you're baptized, you know what you're doing. Okay, so that's the church. Then, what is God doing in baptism? Because it is not just you who are doing something and the church that is doing something. God himself is also active when you are baptized. So what does God do for the person being baptized? Well, I'm going to 
give you a short answer to that question and then I'm hopefully going to be able to show you the truth of this from the scriptures. So what does God do in baptism? By the powerful activity of God in baptism, baptism functions as a bath and it functions as a burial. Now, if there is no faith in the person being baptized, if it's just a bare ritual, so if this is just something that you're doing for a baby or for someone who doesn't believe, then baptism does not function as a bath or a burial. It, it's, it's activated in these things by faith. But if it is true, as I believe the Bible teaches, that God is active when someone with faith is getting baptized, then it is these two things that he is actively doing. He washes that person and he buries that person. Now, those two things are obviously going to take a little bit of explanation. So let's look at a few verses from Scripture that teach this. And firstly, I want to look at baptism as a bath in which God washes the believer. And here there are two verses in particular that I want us to read. Firstly, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Uh, these are the words of Ananias to Saul that we saw earlier. He says, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Okay, but hang on. Just hang on a second. I thought Saul was already saved three days earlier when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. But this is part of the mystery and the wonder of baptism, that although you are already a repentant believer when you are baptized, yet in some sense, it is still true that God uses your baptism to wash away your sins. Now, I think the next verse we're going to look at is tremendously helpful for your understanding the sense in which baptism does save us or wash away our sins. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Peter says that the divine long-suffering waited, so God in his patience waited, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, those are truly complex words, and there has been a lot of conversation and disagreement over what, over what Peter actually meant by those words, baptism saves us. Because those of us who are evangelicals are desperate to avoid the horrendous error of baptismal regeneration, which teaches, as the Catholic Church do, that regardless of the person's faith, or even if it's a baby, that the waters of baptism actually cause the person to be born again and cleansed of the stain of original sin. That the water somehow washes them clean of original sin. And as evangelicals, we want to say Peter cannot possibly mean that because it would contradict what the rest of the New Testament teaches about our being saved by faith in Jesus alone. So what on earth does Peter's statement mean? That baptism saves us, just as Noah's family were saved through the water. Well, the first thing to notice is this. The water 
is not what saved Noah from death. In fact, it was the water which was killing everyone. The ark saved Noah from death. So what did the waters save Noah from? In other words, in what sense did water save him and his family? Well, Noah was living amongst the wicked with the filth of the old world all around him. He was a saint amidst the filth of sin. He was living in a world steeped in sin and violence. Everywhere he looked, he saw sin. It forced its way upon his mind constantly. He was ever aware of it. He was unable to get away from it. His world was a world of sin, though he himself was a saint. But God wants His saints to live new lives. He wants us to live separate from sin and free from it. Once you've been reconciled to God through Christ, He does not want your mind constantly being assailed with the thoughts of your sin and your guilt, with condemning memories of your past. God has designed for His gospel not only to forgive our sin, but also to wash our guilty consciences clean of all that we have been living in and to bury the old life with its identity with sin. And this is what the waters did in Noah's day. They completely washed away the old world of sin and they allowed Noah to begin a new life in what was virtually a new creation just for him. And so it was in this sense that the waters saved Noah. The ark actually saved him, but the waters made his whole world new by washing all the filth of the old world away. And this is what it is like for the baptized person. When you go down into those waters calling on the name of the Lord, God meets your faith there and He washes the past away from you. He washes your conscience clean and He raises you with a new identity. And that freedom from the past, the clearing of our consciences and the burying of our old, our old selves, our old identities... That's as much a part of our salvation as is our forgiveness. You know, salvation is more than justification. Okay? It's more than forgiveness. And of course, we thank God for that eternal pronouncement from the judge that we are now counted as innocent. But salvation is more than just a forensic or external declaration of your forgiveness. It's not something that the judge does outside of you only. It is also an internal work of power that changes you as a person and sets you free from things. And part of that internal work happens through faith at the time of your baptism. So yes, Normally, a person being baptized is already justified or forgiven. But the point Peter is making is that something else actually does happen in those waters. God uses them, when done in faith, to wash the past away in a very real and personal way for the person being baptized. There is power in baptism. It is more than a bare symbol. Now, in theological language... Uh, what I am defending is that baptism is a means of grace. Okay, that word, um, that phrase, means of grace, 
it, it just refers to how God gets his gifts to you. He uses various means to get his gracious gifts to you. And I'm saying that just as the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, which most of the Protestant church have always believed, since Martin Luther banged his fists on the table at the colloquy of Marburg, insisting that God is doing something when we take the bread and wine. He's doing something in us. So just as the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, baptism is also a means of grace. God is active in it. He uses it in a way to do something wonderful for you when you do it in faith. You know, God does use physical ordinances like baptism, the Lord's Supper, to do powerful works upon our souls. God uses physical things to do spiritual work when we participate in these things by faith. Think about it this way. It is faith in the gospel that God meets with life-changing power, right? Faith in the gospel. Well, without a word being spoken, baptism ministers the truths of the gospel to us, but in a very earthy, sensual, physical way. And so when we go down under the water in faith, in faith that, yes, I am dying with Jesus and I am going to be raised with Jesus because he rose from the dead. When we go in faith, God meets our faith and he imparts grace to us. Now, that's why Albert Barnes, the great Bible commentator, said this. Baptism is a means of exhibiting great and important truths in an impressive manner to the soul. It is a means of leading the soul to an entire dedication to a God of purity. It is a means through which God manifests himself to the soul and through which he imparts grace as he does in all other acts of obedience to his commandments. Now, I'm going to read you another quote from an olden day commentary, which I just loved when I read it. It is a little difficult because the language is kind of old, but see if you can follow this wonderful statement from the preacher's homiletic commentary. Baptism is given as a something to rest upon. Nay, a something without which redemption would soon become unreal, which converts a doctrine into a reality, which realizes visibly what is invisible. For our nature is such that immaterial truths are unreal to us until they are embodied in material form. For example, God's character, his way, God himself, to us would be nothing if it were not for the creation, which is the great symbol and sacrament of his presence. In the same way, baptism is a fact for man to rest upon, a doctrine realized to flesh and blood. So it's the truths of the gospel, the same truths that are preached to us, but made physical and ministered to the other senses of the body. You know, how you remember your past, your conscience, is a concern not just for you. It is a concern for God. God does not want you living under condemnation for the sins of your past, which you still do remember. And he uses this very earthy ritual to seal to you a deep and lifelong faith that you are indeed clean and forgiven.
Baptism is a bath which washes the conscience clean. And when you come to those waters with a humble faith in Jesus, God then uses baptism as a means of grace to actually powerfully change how you remember your past. It is more than a psychological trick. God, who is the one who made your mind and he holds your mind and conscience in his hands, he does a mighty work of sealing the truth of your forgiveness to you through this ordinance, which we call baptism. Okay, so that's baptism as a bath, and it's a beautiful thing. And I want to turn our attention now to that second aspect that the Bible uses as a description of what baptism is, which is baptism as a burial. And let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 together. Paul said, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is why baptism only works if you have faith in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember, even Peter said that baptism saves us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as Paul now tells us in these verses from Romans... This is what baptism is. When you are baptized by faith, you are buried with Jesus, being united with him in his death as you go down into that water, dying to your old life. And you are then raised with Jesus to newness of life as you are brought up out of the waters. It's a picture of your dying to your old life, being buried and then rising to a whole new life, united to Jesus who himself was raised from the dead. And so you are united to the one who stands victorious over sin and death. You know, even after you have become a Christian, there is a whole lot of Christian life that you still need to live by faith. And to do that successfully, you have to believe that this complete renovation of your life has taken place. The New Testament letters are full of attempts by the authors to get Christians to understand and live in their new identity in Christ. In fact, those verses we've just read from Paul are exactly that. Somehow, in the deepest part of your soul, you have to know that the old you is gone and that you have in the uh, to use a biblical phrase you have put on the new man you have to know that you are a new creation with new commitments and new desires and new ways and new relationships and new priorities that you are no longer bound by who you were this is why Paul says to the Corinthians do not be deceived Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. 
referring to their baptism. You were washed. You are no longer what you used to be. The fact that the old you is dead must be imprinted by faith on your heart and on your mind with such a powerful force of impression that together with Paul, you can actually cry out, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The truth of that has to be sealed to you. And how is that going to happen? You know, part of being saved from sin and its effects is the miraculous ability to no longer identify yourself as the person you once were. To know that the old you is gone. And this is not something that any person can just tell you. But it is a fact that in baptism the Holy Spirit impresses upon you, sealing it to you. Think of it this way. Anyone who has lost a loved one will tell you that there is wonderful closure which happens when you give a dead person a decent burial. Uh, that's why we do funerals. And you know what? For the sake of closure, the old you also needs a decent burial so that the Holy Spirit can come upon you and you can receive power for a whole new life. A decent burial allows us to put the dead behind us. And so baptism is more than just a bath. It is a burial. God does not only want you to live with a clean conscience after you've become a believer. Now, he does want that, but he wants more than that because salvation is not just about what you've done. It's about who you are. So baptism is a means. It's an instrument that God uses at the beginning of your Christian life to assure you that you are no longer who you used to be, that the old person is now buried and a new person has been raised from the dead. And I hope that that excites you. I want to encourage you, when you get baptized, God is going to wash your conscience clean and He is going to bury the old you. So baptism is not just a bare symbol. It is an instrument used in the hands of God to do something wonderful for you when you participate in faith. And once you've been baptized, you can always look back upon that day with fond remembrance of that day when you called upon the name of the Lord and you were buried in the waters, having your sins washed away. And you will remember how you were raised again with Jesus to a whole new life. Baptism gives you a definite time and place to remember when it comes to your salvation, which can be a real blessing in years to come. Okay, just before we finish, let me say something about the practicalities of your baptism. How do most churches actually do it when you get baptized? Well, obviously, I don't know the details of how your church does its baptisms, and there is much freedom in this. But at the very least, I hope that the following will happen. You will enter the water, and you will stand with the person who will be baptizing you. And then certain questions will be put to you, which you will answer out loud. Just as Ananias told Paul to be baptized while calling on the name of the Lord. Let's think again about those words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he said, 
that baptism is not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. So what did Peter mean when he said that baptism is the answer of a good conscience? Well, the word he used for answer is the Greek word eparotema, eparotema, which can mean either an inquiry, a question, or it can mean an answer to an inquiry. Okay, so it's used of when one person is questioning another person in some kind of formal inquiry. And the word eparotema can actually be used of the question or the answer given to the question. It can be used for both. So what we can say is this. Baptism is associated with the interrogation of a good conscience towards God. And what Peter's probably referring to there. Um, is certain questions that are put to a person who is about to be baptized. At baptism, there is normally, and I think there should be, a verbal interchange between the baptizer and the person being baptized. So the person baptizing you asks you certain questions before dipping you in the water. And I say it's a good thing because you'll remember from our last session that Faith must be expressed verbally, that with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and that baptism, that in baptism you call on the name of the Lord. So you may be asked questions like this. Do you renounce Satan and all occultic activity? And you might say, yes, I renounce Satan and the occult. Do you now turn away from your sin? Yes, I do now turn from my sin. Do you put your faith in Christ entirely for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes, I do trust in Christ alone. Will you follow Jesus as Lord? Yes, I will follow Jesus as my Lord. And with those answers, in the words of Peter, you are both appealing for and giving an answer of a good conscience. Then once you've answered whatever questions are asked of you, the person baptizing you will say something like this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we baptize you into the Lord Jesus, into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And they will then immediately, supporting your body, they will dip you down completely under the water and then bring you up again. And then immediately after your baptism, you should then have hands laid upon you and be prayed for to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that is the subject of our next session. So I hope you are excited about the day of your baptism. And I pray that God will bless you richly in it. And I look forward to seeing you in the next video where we discuss the baptism in the Holy Spirit.